It's Megacon, the largest comic book, anime, gaming, and multimedia event in the southeastern U.S. returns. Megacon from March 21st through the 23rd, 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center in Magical Orlando, Florida. Confirmed comic book guests include Frank Bruner, Neil Adams, Bill Sinkevic, Mark Wade, Ron Mars, Greg Land, Michael Golden, Dennis Calero, George Perez, Brandon Peterson, Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, Collie Hamner, Carl Story, Renee Winterstater, Billy Tucci, and Brian Polito. Just added Nick Bradshaw, Adam Kubert, Dan Jurgens, Mike Miller, Kevin Eastman, Joshua Ortega, Digger, Bart Sears, Ethan Van Skyver, Mike McCone, Frank Thierry, Mike Mayhew, and Chuck Dixon. Confirmed media guests include stars from AMC's The Walking Dead, Torchwood, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Smallville, Battlestar Galactica, Star Wars, Star Trek, and many, many, many more. Plus I, Scott Gardner, will be there representing the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Tickets are available online now at www.megaconvention.com. Children 10 and under are free with paid adult ticket. That's Megacon 2014 at the Orange County Convention Center, Magical Orlando, Florida, March 21st through the 23rd. For information, contact info at megaconvention.com or visit www. Megaconvention.com. That's Megacon 2014. Be there. And now it's time to sit back and enjoy the two true freaks. Internet Radio Broadcast. Attention, people of Earth. Do not resist us. All who oppose us shall be annihilated. We command the most powerful army of monsters in the universe. They are sure to defeat your Earth monsters. All those who are hearing this are now under the control of the Earth. Destruction directed. 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 Hello, everyone, and welcome back once again to the Earth Destruction Directive podcast. As always, I am your host, Mr. Luke Giaconetti. I want to welcome everybody to the show. Hope everyone enjoyed our previous episode where we covered 1992's Godzilla vs. Mothra. Very good show. We also did an issue, of course, of Marvel's Shogun Warriors comic. Now, before we get into the show today, we've got a good show planned for you. We're going to be taking a look at... Uh, 1967's Gamera vs. Gauss, going back to look at the Gamera series again, which we haven't done in uh, quite a while, actually, looking at the uh, the past episodes or so. But before we get into that, we actually have some Daikaiju news that we need to talk about here. Uh, first off, I want to give a shout-out to Mr. James Palmer. Now, James Palmer contacted me through the show's email, and he is the editor of a Daikaiju anthology. I didn't know such things existed, but he's an editor and author of a Daikaiju anthology entitled Monster Earth, and uh, he hooked me up with a review copy of this book, and I'm about halfway through it, and honestly, I am loving this. This is really good. Now, like I said, James Palmer is the editor. There's uh, seven authors uh, who have stories in this book. It's Jim Beard, Edward M. Erdelak, Nancy Hansen, 
Jeff McGinnis, uh, Palmer himself, and Mr. Fraser Sherman, and I.A. Watson. And the thing about this book is that it's these seven stories all take place using the same universe and same theme. And the concept is, is that just prior to World War II, monsters, giant monsters, became known to man. And so that it's an alternate history where World War II was decided not by the use of an atomic bomb, but by the use of giant monsters. And it's really good. I'm, I said, about halfway through it. The stories have been moving chronologically. They begin during the Japanese invasion of China before uh, the U.S. entered World War II. And the one I just finished was set in the 1960s. So they've been slowly progressing forward. Been really good. I'm really enjoying it. I want to thank James for hooking me up with that. You can get a print edition or a Kindle edition of this on Amazon.com. Of course, use the link at 2TrueFreaks.com before you do that. And I was just listening to just one of the guys with Sean Engel, and he had his guest host was Thomas DJ, and Thomas said that he is working on a story for Monster Earth 2, so apparently there's going to be a second one of these, so very excited about that, definitely check that book out, it is, it is fantastic, it's really good, very creative, all the stories have been, you know, really different from each other, but really keeping consistent with the theme, it's really good, and again, thank you James for hooking me up with that, I'm really, really digging it. Uh, now, away from the printed page, of course, with Godzilla, the legendary Godzilla coming out in May of this year, a lot of Daikaiju movies are being released on home media. And uh, we've got not one, not two, but five Toho Daikaiju films being released on Blu-ray in the next couple of months. Now, the first two are dropping from Universal on April the 1st, and they are King Kong vs. Godzilla and King Kong Escapes. Now, this is not real surprising that these are coming from Universal, because Universal owns the uh, U.S. distribution rights to the American versions of these two films, and they did release them on DVD a couple of years back, so this is not real surprising. Now, these Blu-rays are going to be very similar to the DVDs in that they're going to be just bare-bones releases, just the movie and no special features, but they are going to be um, a f- fairly inexpensive. I think I've seen them on... Uh, on Amazon for about $12 a piece. Not bad for a Blu-ray movie. And the DVDs for these releases were, were pretty nice. It's just the American dubbed version, but it was a really nice version of those. And for on Blu-ray format, they'll probably be worth getting. That's that's pretty neat. Now, as I said, those drop on uh, April the 1st. So if you want a nice copy of the American version of King Kong vs. Godzilla or uh, King Kong Escapes, go ahead and pick those up. Now, King Kong Escapes, you, you'll remember, was not that much different from its American to American conversion from the Japanese. King Kong vs. Godzilla had a bit more insert footage, but in this country, most of us know the American version, so I don't, I don't suspect that will be too much of a problem. Now, about a month later, on May 6th, we're getting three films from uh, Kraken releasing, which apparently is a subsection of the outfit Section 23. Now, these three films are Ibera, Horror of the Deep, also known as Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster, Godzilla vs. Hedra, which of course is known in this country as Godzilla vs. the Smog Monster, and Godzilla vs. Gigan. Uh, Godzilla on Monster Island in this country. Uh, Now, these are going to have both the English dubs and Japanese with English subtitles. I'm assuming that these are going to be the Toho International uh, dubs, which is the ones that Toho has made available uh, uh, in digital media over the last decade or so. And now, 
this is the first release from this outfit. I'm not familiar with Section 23, but you know they're they're talking about again uh, some high quality releases here. Uh, these are not uh, super expensive. I think I've seen, seen these on Amazon for about $14 a piece. The Godzilla vs. the Sea Monster on Blu-ray, I can't imagine how vibrant that is going to look. And then the crazy visuals of Smog Monster on Blu-ray should be something to see as well. Um, now, support, reportedly, they're going to be releasing these on DVD as well. If you don't have a Blu-ray player or uh, you just want to hit the whole series in DVD. And uh, as I said, those are due on May 6th. So go ahead and you can pre-order all of these right now on Amazon if you're interested. So go ahead and use the Two True Freaks link and go uh, throw those in your cart on Amazon. The last one comes out on April 29th from Mill Creek Entertainment, and that is Godzilla, the complete animated series known to most folks as Godzilla the Ant Series. Now this, of course, was the series that aired on Fox after the Godzilla 98 film, the American Godzilla film, and featured the last remaining offspring of Zilla working with the Heat team going all across the world fighting other monsters. Now, as I said, this is from Mill Creek Entertainment. This is the same outfit who released the complete series of Ultraman. They also did some other shows. They did Masters of the Universe. They've done Cops other properties like that. So definitely going to be a budget release. Really no frills, bare bones, much like their Ultraman release. But the same token, it's all 40 episodes of the series for 10 bucks. So I'm willing, you know, on a TV show like that, I don't need a ton of extra features and stuff. As long as I get the show, I'm, I'm more than happy. So for 10 bucks, that's kind of a no-brainer for me. And again, you can pick this one up on Amazon right now on a pre-order to be released at the end of April. So a lot of Godzilla and other Daikaiju stuff coming out this year to kind of ride the coattails a little bit of the legendary Godzilla Toy Fair just happened this past weekend and we've got some <laughs> a lot of Godzilla toys coming down the pike. There wasn't a whole lot of pictures, so not much to report on that front, but we're going to have a lot of, you know, new Godzilla and classic Godzilla stuff. Uh, Tamashi Nations tease that there is going to be a Godzilla 2014 SH Monster Arts. And it's like, ooh, I may have to break my rule of not buying SH Monster Arts if they, if I, if depending on how that one looks and how the movie turns out. So, yeah, a lot of stuff. So, uh, as we say, N, you know, uh, NSFW, not safe for wallet. That's what 2014 looks like it's going to be for Daikaiju fans. All right, that's all the news I have for right now. I'm going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we'll get right into Gamma vs. Gauss here on Earth Destruction Directive. Gathered together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron. Dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind. It's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, we are back here on Earth Destruction Directive. 
This time out, we're going to be taking a look at Gamera vs. Gauss, the third film in the Gamera series. Gamera vs. Gauss was released in Japan in 1967 and released later that same year on US TV, thanks to AIP uh, television, uh, under the title Return of the Giant Monsters. Later on in the United States, in the late 80s, it was released on video as Gamera vs. Gauss. This is the infamous Sandy Frank version of this film. Now, this film was, <coughs> excuse me, directed by Noriaki Yuasa, generally accepted as the, uh, putting air quotes up to the mic, Gamera director. So let's get right into it. A series of underwater volcanic eruptions. There's always a lot of underwater volcanic eruptions in these movies. I guess when you literally live on the actual Pacific Rim, that's kind of something you have to deal with. Anyway, these eruptions cause increased activity in and around Mount Fuji, including a strange greenish glow to emanate from the rock. This is but the latest setback for Express Engineering Incorporated, which is building a highway nearby. The project has been plagued with protests and sabotage from the local villagers, all of it stemming from a dispute over the land prices. Slowly but surely work progresses, but is shut down once again when a UN geological survey team is killed when their helicopter is destroyed by a strange yellow beam emitted from the mountain. A small boy, Ichi, grandson of the village elder, finds a reporter snooping around the mountain. The two decide to investigate the glowing light, which leads them to a cave where they find a giant winged monster named Gauss. The reporter runs away like the craven little coward that he is, but he ends up face to face with the beast anyway, who promptly eats him. Yikes. Ichi is in a bad spot when suddenly from out of the earth comes Gamera. The heroic turtle defends the boy, driving his foe back with his fire breath. But Gauss is not defenseless and uses a beam of pure yellow sonic energy from his mouth to seriously wound Gamera's hand. Our hero is not defeated, though, and is able to drive Gauss away long enough to grab Ichi and bring him to safety. Scientists convene and try to understand Gauss's origins, and maybe figure out a way to defeat him. They come to several conclusions. First off, they realize that he hates fire and sunlight. Secondly, they deduce that because of his unique biology, including the fact that one zoologist theorizes that he must have two throats necessary to create the uh, echo chamber for his sonic beam, that Gauss cannot turn his head at the neck. The JSDF orders bombing runs to try and use the heat to burn him out, but Gauss merely slices the jets into pieces using his sonic beam. That night, Gauss emerges from the mountain, and while the military try to use super bright flares to drive him back, he simply blows the resistance away by flapping his massive wings. The monster then wings off to Nagoya and raises the city, eating terrified citizens as they flee. Gamera shows up to defend the city, and a brutal fight ensues between the two behemoths. Gamera uses his shell to his advantage, blocking as many of the sonic beams as he can. But he can't block them all and is wounded by Gauss once again. But as the night begins to turn into dawn, Gauss tries to retreat, afraid of sunlight. Gamera chomps down on his foot and holds him in place, trying to kill him with the sun. Gauss is able to blast himself free with his sonic beam at the cost of several of his toes and manages to escape. A new plan is developed to lure Gauss into the sunlight to kill him. The unlikely plan involves the construction of, wait for it, a giant spinning platform with wait for it, a fountain in the middle which sprays, wait for it, artificial human blood. 
Amazingly, this plan is put into action. Gauss takes the bait, landing on the platform at, towards the end of the uh, evening, end of the night, I should say, and begins guzzling up the fake blood. The platform begins to spin around, holding Gauss in place with centrifugal force, dizzying the monster. But the load on the electrical generators is too great, and the platform stops spinning before sunrise, and Gauss escapes again. One last desperate plan is concocted by Ichi's grandfather. If Gauss doesn't like fire, set the mountain on fire! Random act of violence against Mount Fuji. With a series of bombing runs, the mountain is soon ablaze. But Gauss merely uses an anti-fire gas that he emits from under his wings to put out the fires each time. But the flames also bring the attention of Gamera, who had been healing under the water, and the monster furiously attacks Gauss. The two battle back and forth, with Gamera taking advantage of Gauss's lack of peripheral vision to pounce on his back and then judo throw him. Gauss returns the favor by picking up Gamera by his shell and dropping him over and over from the sky. But our hero is able to regain the upper hand by throwing a boulder into Gauss's mouth, blocking the sonic beam just long enough to bite down on Gauss's neck. As the sun begins to rise, Gamera drags his foe to the crater of Mount Fuji and dumps him inside, ending the threat of Gauss forever. And as Gamera flies off her home, the villagers agree to let the road be built, and all is well. Oh boy, fun story this time out, fun movie in general. Uh, Gamera vs. Gauss is, is kind of exists in a weird place, because in a lot of ways it's a transitional film. It's similar in a lot of ways both to the film that comes before it, Gamera vs. Barugan, and also the later, more kiddie films. You know, Gamera is treated as a hero in this film, despite the fact that in the last film he attacked humanity. You know, that him and Barragon fought didn't make Gamera a hero so much as just the less evil of the two monsters. Uh, it, it, this film is held in high regard as the best of the Showa Gamera's by most critics, and I th you'd be hard-pressed to argue with them. I have a soft spot for Gamera vs. Barragon, but this is a really, really strong entry. It's a lot of fun, and I, I, I had a lot of fun watching it. So let's get into some notes here. Our human storyline involves not only an evil businessman, but also greedy villagers. This sort of story was very typical of the 60s Showa films. You know, greed is bad, working together is good. This type of message was very common in post-war Japan. Uh, you know, the, the excesses of uh, the rise, the, the industrial rise of Japan during and after World War II led to this sort of cautionary tale, most famously, of course, in, in 1964's Mothra vs. Godzilla, but definitely on display here. And, it, you know, it, it's again, it adds to that golden age of giant monsters feel to this film to have that storyline in place. I like it. And, it. and it plays out in a reasonable enough way, because you can see both sides of the argument. You know, the businessmen are trying to buy the land at a fair price to build their, uh, build their highway, but obviously they don't want to pay too much. And the villagers, you know, some of them want to sell, but they don't want to sell their lands too cheaply. So you can understand the conflict there. Even though it's not exactly high drama, it does provide some nice human action. Uh, early on in the film, when the UN helicopter is uh, surveying the mountain, and then later, uh, when the jets are making their bombing run, Gauss uses his sonic beam to slice them into pieces. This reminded me, 
from an execution standpoint to how in the last film Baragun used his freezing breath to freeze the jets and then they'd break apart. I'm, I believe it was done using a similar method with the models being held together very lightly and then pulled apart. But it really looks great. The helicopter one makes use of a full-scale sort of prop where we see the... Uh, you know, the geologists and observers in the helicopter set looking out, and then it begins to split apart after Gauss shoots a beam through it. Reminds me of some of the scenes from the film The Cassandra Crossing, which was a 1970s disaster film about a train derailment. And when the train comes off the bridge and crashes, there's some really nice things with the set, also similar to the film Earthquake in a lot of ways. I really like that, where the helicopter splits apart and we see the, uh, the you know, the, everybody's starting to fall out and everything. A similar gag is used later in a comedic way when Gauss cuts a car in half while some guys are chasing him trying to get a picture, but that one's played for laughs. I, I like it. It's still effective use of that, uh, that effect. When Ichi and the reporter are in the cave, we see a very traditional Universal Monster-style bat on a string. Now, as much as I always love seeing bats on strings in movies, to me, I took this as a little bit of foreshadowing, because the Gauss as a monster most closely resembles a bat. You know, he's got the big leathery wings, he comes out at night, he drinks blood. So having a little bat in the cave I thought was a nice bit of foreshadowing. Maybe I'm giving them too much credit, but I, I like to think that that was intentional. Now, speaking of Gauss, he makes the scene in the film about 20 minutes in. Uh, so about average for this type of film. We've got the setup, and then we've got the introduction of the human story, and then the monsters get in there right towards the end of the first act. And now, Gauss is a very interesting-looking monster in that he fits the mold of what we've seen so far from the Gamera series in that his look is not too crazy. You know, he's he's got kind of a you know standard flying monster shape. His silhouette is not that much different from Rodan. You know, why his arms out to the side, wide, broad, wings. Uh, his head is different because his head is kind of triangular in shape, if that makes sense, like a triangular prism, and the top is completely flat. And uh, his neck, of course, is very thick, uh, which is why he can't turn his head. I thought it was very clever that one of the limitations of the suit was that the suit uh, actor could not turn his head in the suit so they instead of simply ignoring it they made a story point out of it they hung a lampshade on it if you will and said yeah he can't turn his head so I, I that I thought was neat Gauss is easily the most popular of Gamera's foes Guren is pretty popular on the internet but Gauss was very popular back in the 60s and remained popular today that's why Gauss was brought back in the Heisei Gamera Guardian of the Universe trilogy over all of the other monsters uh, and it's you know he's he's a good design it's it's based on a bat much in the same way that Gamera is based on a turtle so he's recognizable but still very monstrous I, I like Gauss a lot my friend Joe is a big fan of Gauss from the later films and, and he he uh, quits himself nicely in this film the effects in general they're good for Dai but, you know, they're kind of clearly a step below what Toho was doing around this point. 1967 saw the release of uh, King Kong Escapes and Son of Godzilla. And, you know, we, Son of Godzilla, we always think about the, the kind of poor Godzilla suit. But the effects in that film are actually quite strong, considering how many marionettes are being used instead of suits. And King Kong Escapes, as we covered in the episode for that, had some really good effects, some really ambitious, well-executed special effects. 
Dai never had as big a budget as Toho, never had as much time as Toho necessarily. So they're a, definitely a step down. But for what Dai was capable of doing, this is really quite nice. This is this is right up there with what they with Gamera versus Barugan the year before. And uh, see, I've only and the thing is, I've only ever seen this film on the small screen. The biggest screen I've ever seen it on is my 40-inch. Uh, you know, LCD TV at my house. So on the small screen, these effects are fine. You know, they, they look nice. They look, uh, you know, fairly clear. How this would look on the big screen, I don't know. And I likely will never know since the chance of getting a, a big screen screening of a Gamera film, unlikely. But they're, you know, the, the model work, the compositions of shots, they're solid, if not, you know, spectacular. They're not great, but they hold together pretty nicely. You know, we tend to think of the Gamera films as being really shoddy, and there are some really shoddy effects in the Gamera series, but there's nothing here that would look out of place if uh, Subaraya was doing it on Ultraman, or if it was in... Uh, you know, another uh, lesser budgeted film than Toho. The thing with Toho is that they had better money, better film stock, better lighting, you know, in general, than, than Dai did. So Dai does, their their crew does the best with what they have, and that's ultimately all I really ask for from a giant monster. We just just do the best you can with it and, and you know, put in a good effort, and they certainly do that here. I mean, both monsters look real nice. The models, like I said, generally look good. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the they don't... The scenes in Nagoya don't do a lot of city destruction, but there there's some really well-done shots in there. Uh, one effect I do want to note, I always love a full-scale aspect, and there is a full-scale Gauss Claw that menaces Ishii on the... Uh, on the mountain, and I always love full scale. Ever since I was a kid, I always loved like the full scale King Kong foot or hand or face from the Marion C. Cooper's uh, King Kong. So I always like full scale effects like that. Now, and it, speaking of when Gauss is menacing, excuse me, menacing Ishii on the mountain. Now, this scene, Gamera helps Ishii escape. Now, Gamera in the original film, you remember Kenny had kind of a weird obsession with Gamera, but Gamera never had any relationship whatsoever with Kenny. And then in Gamma vs. Barrigan, there are no children characters. Now here, Ishii is saved directly by Gamera. Gamera takes him out of harm's way, puts him on his shell, flies uh, to, a, to a, a remote location so that he can be rescued, including flying not by spinning. He only pulls in his legs and flies straight so that Ishii won't fly off uh, with him doing his um, UFO uh, flight technique. So this is the first of what we would see of Gamera becoming the friend to all children. And it's, again, it's an interesting transition because uh, he is, Gamera is referred to as the benevolent monster. And it's like, he wasn't benevolent in the last movie. But it was clear that this was the direction that they wanted to go. We had seen this change already happen with Godzilla in Aguirre the Three-Headed Monster, then Monster Zero, Sea Monster, Son of Godzilla, and so forth. So, the the transition of Gamera becoming a hero clearly influenced by outside factors, and it plays well in this film. We we kind of accept it because we think of Gamera as a heroic monster. You know, he doesn't have the same pedigree of Godzilla of being an evil monster, so we're more willing to accept it. And I think it plays out well because Ishii is not 
the complete focus of the film. He is one of the main characters. He acts kind of like a Greek chorus and, and comments on things that are going on. But it's not like some of the later films where he, he's, he would be the main character. The adults are still the main characters of the humans in the film. So Ichi as a child uh, character in a Gamera film is actually pretty tolerable. They called him Ichi on the Mystery, Mystery Science Theater 3000 episode. So I always got to catch myself and calling him Ichi instead of Ichi. So overall, he, he's a good character con, compared especially to what would come after him. I mean, he's still annoying. He's still a kid. And he, we see him playing with toys a lot. And at one point, actually, there's a pretty good scene of him throwing his toys at the other villagers that come to harass his grandfather. So uh, overall, I think he's he's one of the better of the child characters in in the Gamera series. And I had I, remembered him being more annoying, so I was pretty pleasantly surprised by that. After Gauss's initial appearance, we get a sequence where scientists discuss Gauss's biology. And I, I thought this was interesting that they made a point of this, because in the Toho films, generally, we simply just, oh, it's, you know, he's a legendary beast, and, and here we go. Whereas here, they try to, you know, think about it from kind of a scientific term. We see footage of a... Uh, a of a uh, ultrasonic beam being generated to show that it can cut through things to explain how his beam works. You know, there's a, we get a great shot of him putting an overlay over a, a drawing of Gauss to show what his uh, internal organs might look like and how he could generate the sonic beam using his two throats. And uh, there's a great line in here where somebody says, well, how did this thing come out? What, what is it? Is it a bird? Is it a type of reptile? And the scientist says, let's just call it a monster. Which is what I've always kind of fallen back on. It's like, it's just, let's just leave it, let's call a spade a spade, shall we? Let's leave it in simple terms here. Uh, and also interesting is that Ichi is the one who names Gauss. Because he starts calling him Gauss, and they say, why do you call him Gauss? He goes, because that's what his cry sounds like. He's saying, Gauss, Gauss! And it's like, that's fair enough. You know, uh, you know, a lot of times we simply take monsters having names for granted, whereas here they at least make a point of saying, yeah, it's, it's, this is what the kid named him, let's refer to him as Gauss, and let's simply call him a monster. Now, one of the major scenes in this film, and one of the best ones, is the nighttime attack on Nagoya by Gauss and then Gamera coming in to save the day. Thematically, this reminded me of Baragon attacking Osaka in the previous film, again attacking at night, giving it that kind of moody look, low-light look. Uh, but it, it it's, it's just as ambitious as that scene, and I think just as well put together. It's a very good monster-on-the-loose scene. Now, in a series that would start shying away from these sorts of scenes in cities as they went on, because city models are more expensive than, you know, alien landscapes or the bottom of the ocean or what have you, they they do a good job here. There's not a huge amount of city destruction, but Gauss does a fair share of it. And uh, him interacting with people, he chases people down and eats them. It's done in a pretty nicely composited way, and it's done in a fairly subtle way. Now, Gauss eating people is a bit is a bit shocking until you think about the fact that this came a year after Gyra did that in War of the Gargantuas. So, it, it, the, kind of the releaser cue had already been done for the monster eating people, and Gauss being a vampire bat, and, you know, that's, we, we're more ready, it's, it's, it's shocking, but at the same time, it's, it makes sense. It's pretty atypical for giant monsters to eat people like that. that that's what makes Gauss and uh, Gyra stand out so much for doing it. Uh, but it's, um, you know, it's it works out. It works out for the vampire character. Gauss's flying prop is very stiff. 
but given the time period, that's understandable. Frankly, it doesn't look any more stiff than the the legs on Mothra and Batra from Gamera or from Godzilla vs. Mothra from 1992, and this was 25 years before that. So I'm willing to let it go. It still looks nice. It flies smoothly enough, but you can tell it's it's clearly a puppet. Now, one of the things that's very notable about this scene is that there's a bit in the, towards the end where they're in the effects tank, they're in the bay, and Gamera is in the water, and he's got a chomped uh, bite on Gauss's foot. Now, this scene is really well done because it's, it's not the puppet, it's Gauss's suit that is being held above the effects tank, flapping, trying to pull away. You can tell it's the suit because it's got full range of motion. And so we've got the the water effects gamma suit in the tank, and you've got the regular Gauss suit above the tank. Very well put together. This reminds me of the scene in Destroy All Monsters, where uh, King Ghidorah lands as the full suit lands, not the flying puppet. And they show the fl- the full suit being flown around the set. This is very similar to that. It's not as it's not quite as uh, I'm assuming that Gauss was not quite as heavy as King Ghidorah was, but it still looks really nice, and it comes off real really sharp on on screen. You know, Gamera's got a real good solid bite on Gauss, and Gauss is kicking and flailing, and ends up like I said shooting his own foot off, which is. Uh, Kind of the the level of violence we expect in a Gamera film, but I thought it was really well done. I've got a really neat little mini diorama of that scene where where Gauss is flying in the air trying to pull himself away from Gamera. Kind of a standout bit in the film for me. The the spinning platform with the blood fountain. This is the best idea that they can come up with. We know the monster's weak to sunlight. He doesn't like fire. And, and, he, and he drinks human blood. He can't turn his head. This is what we can. We're going to make him really dizzy and then hope the sun comes up in time. It's like, okay. If this was the idea they went with, what ideas did they reject? I've always wondered that. You know, I mean, again, but this was the same series that lured Gamera into a rocket and blasted him into space. So they, they're clearly thinking outside the box. During the uh, final fight uh, between Gamera and Gauss, uh, again, Gamera uses the, the, the character beat of Gauss not being able to turn his head very nicely because he gets behind Gauss and Gauss can only see in front of him. So he's able to sneak up on him and pounce on his back in a very neat scene. And then he judo throws him because uh, you know all monsters have to use judo. They're Japanese, after all. But it also um, does a has a great little bit where he throws the rock and it stops up uh, Gauss's mouth. Now, anytime I see this in a Daikaiju film, always makes me think, of course, of King Kong versus Godzilla, where Kong uproots a tree and shoves it in Godzilla's mouth, and then Godzilla simply blasts it out with fire uh, a second later. Here, Gamera gets more uh, value out of it than Kong did because he's able to block the sonic beam for just enough time to get in close and uh, and chomp down on Gauss's neck. Very vicious. But again, he did a similar attack to Baragon. He chomped down on Baragon's neck at the end of their fight in the previous film. The ending is very similar in that respect. In uh, Gamera vs. Baragon, uh, Gamera chomped down on his neck and dragged Baragon into the water, which was his weakness. Here, Gamera chomps on Gauss's neck and holds him in place as the sun comes up. And when, when Gauss is in the sun, the top of his head, his flat forehead, starts to glow red. And he starts glowing red, and he's thrashing, trying to get out, and Gamera's holding him tight. And so he pulls him up the mountain and throws him into the magma to kill him. So, again, very similar sort of way of destroying his foe. You know, hold on to him and drag him to his weakness. Gamera being a lethal monster 
it, you know, I've heard different different takes on this that it was inappropriate for a children's film. That you know, kids understand that these are monsters and not people, and so it's okay. I think it's just one of the things that Dai was doing to kind of separate themselves from Toho. It was rare for a monster to be killed, killed in a Toho film, whereas Gamera usually dispatches his foes with a certain bit of finality to it. What it also meant was that it was harder for Dai to bring monsters back. And in fact, until we get to the Heisai films, none of the monsters recur. The Gauss suit, of course, would be uh, painted silver and show up in Gamera vs. Guren as Space Gauss, but it's not meant to represent the same character that we see here. So, I don't know, what do you folks think? Do you like Gamera killing his foes? Do you not like Gamera killing his foes? I, I'm okay with it. Like I said, it thematically, it, it helps differentiate Gamera and Godzilla a little bit. So I think it's it's kind of a neat touch, even though it means no giant uh, Gamera uh, equivalent of Destroy All Monsters monster mashup. As I mentioned earlier, this episode was on Mystery Science Theater 3000. It was on twice. Uh, it was on one of the original Kitma episodes, and then more well-known, it was on Season 3, Episode 8. Now, the, the bit I always remember from this, there's two host segments that I love. One is where Joel is trying to do an arts and crafts activity with the bots, and they just keep messing with them. And the second is the uh, the Gamera Damarung, where they try to do an epic multi-part musical uh, of the Gamera song, and this includes the mad scientist down in Deep 13 with the two mole people playing like a heavy metal version of Gamera's theme song. I don't think I will ever forget that. Absolutely bananas. Good episode. It's available on the MST3K versus Gamera box set if you want to pick that up along with the other four Misty Gamera films. Now, speaking of DVD releases, Shout Factory has released this film on a double feature with the next film, Gamera vs. Virus, in a very handsome uh, set that has the uh, dubbed Japanese version, and then the AIP TV version, and then the Sandy Frank version. So you have all three versions of this film that you can choose from. Um... There's also been various cheapy DVDs out there that almost always use the Sandy Frank dub. Now, the Sandy Frank dub, that's kind of a misnomer, because the Sandy Frank releases use the international dubs that were prepared by Dai. So it wasn't that Sandy Frank hired a bunch of you know, bad actors to do it. Dai hired a bunch of bad actors to do it, and Sandy Frank just released them. Now, that's a version I have. Uh, I have a, a double fee, a, well, it's a two-disc set from Diamond Entertainment called Giant Monster Movie, Japanese Monster Movies Collector's Edition. It also has uh, Monster, uh, Monster from a Prehistoric Planet, which, of course, is Gappa, and then I forget what the other two are on the first disc. But it's just, uh, you know, it's obviously taken from a VHS source. There's several cheap DVD collections that have Gamma vs. Gauss on it. Now, Return of the Giant Monsters, other than the the release on Shout Factory, I've only seen it on one DVD that is fairly expensive because it's out of print. Interestingly, unlike the other AIP TV dubs for Gamera, Return of the Giant Monsters does not appear to be in the public domain, which is why you don't see it from like Alpha Video or on archive.org like you do with the other ones. So a little bit harder to track down, but if you want it, now you can get it from the Shout Factory uh, DVD if you want that Return of the Giant Monsters dub. Uh, if, if you want the film, your best bet's that Shout Factory DVD. It's like 13 bucks on Amazon. You get two movies. It's widescreen. It's beautiful. If you like this movie, that's the one to get. And as I said, you can get the MST3K version in the Misty vs. Gamera box set, which is, uh, of course, that's just hours and hours of fun there.
As far as what most fans consider to be a quote-unquote Gamera film, this is one of, if not the best, of the Showa films. Uh, Gamera acts like Gamera is supposed to act. Uh, You know, there's a kid in there... He's not super annoying, nor is he the only focus, so that's a plus. And Gauss is an enduring foe for Gamera, has been around for a long time, and is, as I said, very popular. The story is not too serious, but at the same time, not too silly. So it strikes a nice balance, and is is something that you can watch as a kid and understand, and you can watch as an adult and appreciate the more mature stuff. It's not just super juvenile like some of the later entries. You know, kids will be entertained by it, not uh, because it's not so much grown-up stuff that you get bored from the monsters. But a grown-up can watch it too with the uh, and appreciate the subplot with the villagers and the construction company. As I said, the effects are about the best that Dai was going to be able to put out at this point. And the monster fights themselves are very well choreographed and assembled. And some of the, you know, and we get a number of them. We get several encounters between Gamera and Gauss in the film, and all of them well done. Overall, just a fun Daikaiju experience. You know, this is a film which fans of this genre will obviously enjoy. And non-fans will probably have a good time laughing at the film. You know, sometimes that's just the way things go. You're never going to convert everybody all the time. This is a film that's probably not going to win people over if they're not already a giant monster fan. But they'll have fun watching it, even if they're laughing at it a little bit. You know, the, the Gamera films never took themselves super, super seriously by this point. And, you know, sometimes we've got to take a step back and breathe and just relax, like they say on Misty, and just have a good time. So definitely check this one out. As I said, plenty of DVD options for uh, you to check out uh, on Amazon. Just use the 2TrueFreaks.com link before you do that. I am going to take a quick podcast break, get myself a drink, and we will be right back to take a look at the at Shogun Warriors number 8 here on Earth Destruction Directive. Imagine you enter the world of the Shogun Warriors. They're on the move. There's Raideen with Delta Wing missiles, Dragoon with a star shooter, and Mazinga with a rocket launcher. The Shogun. Imagine you command them to defend freedom, protect justice, and challenge Edo. The Shoguns. They're ready to strike when you are. Shogun Warriors, Mazinga, Dragoon, Raideen, equipped with their own gear, each sold separately from Mattel. All right, we're back on Earth Destruction Directive, and now it's time once again to look in on the Invincible Guardians of World Freedom. We've got Shogun Warriors number 8. Uh, cover dated 9- September 1979, released June 5th, 1979. This is, of course, per Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Our cover uh, features Raideen holding a Coast Guard ship in his hands, pulling it out of the water. Well, in the background, flying in uh, to attack is the robot monster Cerberus. Not the most exciting of covers that we've seen from this series, but certainly good. It's got some very interesting use of white negative spaces. The sky that Cerberus is flying in is completely white. A nice enough cover. The writer of our issue is Doug Mensch. Penciler Herb Trimpey. Inker is Mike Esposito. Letterer James R. Novak. Colorist Carl Gafford. Editor Alan Milgram. And the title is Cerberus and the Sky Fall. Yeah, I'm coming for you, Adele. You watch it. On a beach near Los Angeles, Richard Carson and his friend Dina James pilot Raideen as he faces down the robot monster Cerberus, who is using his multiple head configurations to battle the Shogun. But the battle is interrupted by the arrival of a Coast Guard cutter. The combatants ignore the ship, 
until it opens fire on Cerberus, leading the robot monster to abandon his attack on Raiden and use his head module jets to attack the ship. Raiden saves the ship by picking it up and beaching it, telling the captain to get the civilians out of harm's way. Cerberus then pulls out a new trick and sprouts arms and legs, stalking right at Raiden. Meanwhile, off the coast of Madagascar, the Longo Savage and his lady friend Judith are in the midst of talking when a fireball crashes into the sea near their ship. Savage's pendant glows and Dr. Tambura's image appears, telling the Shogun pilot that even though the object is not a normal celestial body, they don't have any more information for him, and that if he wants to investigate, well, that's his call. Really? Back in California, the battle is still raging. An errant blast from Cerberus destroys the foundations of a house built into the hills, and Raiden has to turn his back on his opponent to save the inhabitants. Cerberus looks to take advantage, but Dina, under direction from Richard, has Raiden mule-kick the monster with a massive clong. Raiden then unleashes all of his weapons at once, and Cerberus turns tail and runs. The Shogun gives chase by transforming to Firehawk mode and blasts Cerberus from the sky, crashing into the Pacific. A sensor sweep shows no trace of the many-headed monstrosity, and Richard and Dina head home. In Japan, we catch up with Genji Odashu just long enough for her to be arrested by the Tokyo police and whisked away from her friend Kosei. All subplots accounted for, copyright, Sean Engel, 2012, all rights reserved. Back at the coast of Madagascar, Savage and Judith don diver's gear and head down to investigate the fireball. Inside a grotto, they find a strange, pulsating, seemingly living meteor, which splits open to reveal the horrifically gruesome beast. Next issue, spotlighting Dangard Ace in a fierce battle to save Judith's life from... The Thing in the Grotto. Ooh, action-packed this time out for sure. Uh, this, this book really has been piling on the action quotient, it's no different here. Uh, looking at page one, we get our uh, typical splash page as we've been getting, but it's split, so it's actually not really a splash page. It's two, two panels that take up the majority of the page. And on the left-hand side, we see the five head modules of Cerberus flying around, and then in the second panel, they lock into a new configuration. Uh, and we, you know, uh, Trimpy's done a, a, had a, it seems like he's had a lot of fun designing different ways for these five ships to combine to form a new head. And this one looks really nice, too. Cerberus uses this one a few times throughout this uh, issue. I've generally liked the splash pages, and this one, even though it's a little bit different, uh, I still think it's uh, it works. What I like is that, because the uh, the perspective changes, because Raiden is not standing directly, like we're not looking straight on at his back, we're looking at him at an angle. So if you look at the left um, horn piece on his helmet and then the right horn piece, they're slightly different between the two panels to keep the perspective. I thought that was pretty nice. Turning over to page two, panel four, Cerberus uses his vortex attack on Raiden and the impact is filled with Kirby Crackle. I thought that was a very nice touch, especially for a Marvel book. Uh, there's a lot of red coloring on the impact here. Uh, I've mentioned before that Carl Gafford does a, a really good job with the coloring in this book, and there are several examples in this issue that I will call out as being standout coloring. The red here on the impact as Radine is, is knocked back from the vortex shot, I think is, is really effective and stands out. It really pops. Now, it's more of like a magenta, kind of a pinkish red, but I still think it looks really good. I really like that. It's, it's rare that you get to really call out colors, but this is such a colorful series in general that there's a lot of opportunity to, to get you know real interesting color choices like that. 
Remember to page three, panel five, his Coast Guard captain, he comes up on a giant robot fighting another giant robot. He gets on the bullhorn and orders them to surrender. Of course, they ignore him. So he opens fire. That's pretty ballsy for a Coast Guard captain. You know, the Coast Guard kind of gets a, a rep as just being the, the kings of search and rescue, you know. But, uh, no, he, he opens fire. Doesn't even doesn't even uh, hesitate. It's like, uh, geez, that guy, uh, you know. It is an unlikely depiction of the U.S. Coast Guard, I guess. You know, you usually don't expect him to be that aggressive. But it was still made for an interesting point. I mean, you know, the the government doesn't know anything about the shoguns, the the the, the uh, you know the servants of the light are their own little things. So it makes sense that they'd question the appearance of these two giant robots uh, on the shore of California. Uh, page six, panel four, as the head modules swoop in and attack the Coast Guard cutter, we get a shot from right around deck level, looking up at Radine. Just a uh, really nice depiction of. Radine's height from the perspective, you know, because he, he just towers above the the uh, the ship. And then the next panel, it's kind of the opposite look, where we're looking over Radine's shoulder down at the ship, and you can see how far away the ship looks from Radine as they're firing on him, and he's going to grab them. Uh, you know, it, it's in in superhero comics, typically everybody is around human size. So I, I've said this a couple of times throughout this. Uh, covering Shogun Warriors book is that it's neat to see how Trimpy plays with perspective and heights for the giant characters when they interact with the you know human-sized and human-scaled characters and items. Page 7, panel 2, is essentially the cover as we see um, Radine lifting the ship out of the water. What's interesting is on the cover, uh, Cerberus was in his combined form attacking, whereas here the head modules are still swooping around. But still, uh, you know, in, in an era where things that happen on the cover almost never occur inside the book, as, as we are nowadays, it's always fun to see the cover directly relate to what's going on inside. And in fact, almost literally in this case. Now, the next panel, uh, there must have been a little bit of a mix-up. There's a bit of a switched word balloon, because it appears that after Radine, or after Carson says through Radine, if you want to help, stay out of the way and keep everybody else out of the way, then he says he's beaching us. And I think this is clearly supposed to be two different uh, word balloons. Uh, but, you know, it, it's just a minor thing. Also, this panel, the the only instance of bikini girls in the entire book, and it's a tiny little uh, figure in this panel of uh, a girl in a red bikini hooked arms with her, I'm assuming, hunky boyfriend in, in black trunks and a few other folks looking on, including uh, a fat guy in a Hawaiian shirt, because there has to be a fat guy in a Hawaiian shirt, right? Now, unfortunately, no, not like last issue as far as the use of bikini girls. So uh, that that's a, a little ding, but I'm willing to let it slide. Uh, turning over to page 10, Cerberus converts into uh, a land mode. He had been, of course, using his um, his legs, quote-unquote, uh, with, with uh, jet boosters to fly around, so now he's he's walking around. His arms, his arms look like Bender's arms from Futurama. So I imagine them kind of bendy and moving in all different directions, like Bender's arms, and then they've got the big balls at the end with the blasters in them. So he looks kind of like, uh, you know, a, a kind of monster that you might get like in the 80s from like a cheap kind of a 5 and 10 monster that was made of like bendy plastic you know the 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 rubbery plastic with the wire inside i'm thinking maybe not as cheap as that but like the D&D advanced dungeons and dragons toys monsters they had some of those bendy monsters like that i think it would have been neat just to have his arms bend all around he still looks cool he's got guns a gun placed on his chest he's got a gun on each hip obviously he's firing weapons from his hands and his head has all different weapons mounted in it as well 
Uh, page 11, panel 1, uh, as Cerberus lays into Raiding, first off, we get a great sound effect of shaboom, and then uh, Gafford, again, with the colors, where the, the impact all around Raiding is in yellow, but the blasts hitting him and then Raiding himself are are a very warm orange, almost borderline on, on orange-red. I really like it, again, as I said. It's such a bright book that we get opportunities for interesting colors like this whenever there's impacts, and I think this one really stands out. Again, and, and the rest of the page is more dark, because later on in the page we transition to Ilongo and Judith in Madagascar, and that scene's at night, so this very bright panel really stands out. I, I really like this one. Speaking of uh, Ilongo and uh, Judith, I had asked a question a couple of uh, issues ago. Judith, potential love interest, interest for Ilongo Savage, and I think from this conversation we can say, oh yeah, Savage gets a little action. Turning over to page 14, panel 5, as the fireball lands in the sea, interrupting Ilongo and Judith's, uh, Judith's romantic moment. Again, another great piece of impact coloring from Gafford. Uh, the the sky is lit up with a bit of yellow, and then the fireball and the impact itself is a, it's a like a burst of, of orangey red. I really like it. I, I can't say enough about the coloring in this book. It's just been really nice. And uh, I, I could just go on about it, but it's, it's really a nicely put together panel. Page 15, uh, Dr. Tambora, useless once again. I don't understand why they have all this advanced scientific equipment to monitor all these things if they can't give them any useful information. They didn't know anything about Cerberus. They don't know anything about this uh, celestial body that falls to Earth other than it's not normal. Otherwise, we wouldn't have picked it up. And yet they're not even interested in it. They just kind of say, oh, well, you know. And his actual line is... Uh, should you wish to investigate the phenomenon independently, that's your own choice to make. It's like, talk about your weasel words. It's almost like he's going to slap Savage with a uh, with a, a bill for using Dangard Ace if he goes to do it on his own. It's like, well, I didn't tell you to do it. It's like, what is this? When did, when did, uh, why is the followers of the light like middle management? Ugh, just doesn't make sense. I, I don't know. I'd have, I'd have trouble taking orders from a guy like this. Turning over to uh, page 16, panel 1. Uh, I, I promise this is the last uh, panel I will mention this on. But again, another great use of coloring as uh, Cerberus Blast Raiding. Uh, the, again, the background is all like a, a yellow with um, black line starburst almost. And then Raiding's chest where he's getting shot is also yellow. But then his arms, his head, his shoulder pads, those are, are the uh, a very light orange grading to a, a medium orange and it just really looks like he you know it's it's the light and shadow being thrown by the blast in one part of this robot that's you know changing the colors all around so I, i'm really impressed with carl gafford's work in coloring this issue and i won't i won't go on about it anymore but i just gotta say it really stood out to me on uh, my read through uh, later on down the page panels three and four we get Radine's counterattack. Uh, first, in panel three, he does a bullets and bracelets routine as he uh, uses both his uh, forearm and his fist to block two blasts from Cerberus with the sound effects spat and chat, which sounds like they should be characters on a Hanna-Barbera cartoon. And then in panel four, we get the shot of his giant fist coming right at us and uh, knocking Cerberus down. And uh, all I can think is, behold my mighty hand! This lays a right cross right to Cerberus's face. Uh, page 17, panel 1, uh, again, good use of, uh, of light and shadow, as Cerberus opens up with his vortex beam, and we see Raiding dive out of the way, well, he's now, his, uh, from his shoulders up, is now completely in shadow, so it's actually completely blacked out. So, again, it, this also gets back to the use of heightened perspective, 
because the characters are so large they move through different part you know parts of sunlight and shade and uh, it, it's just it's just a real nice delineation to see you know that that much of it is in, it's in shadow but we can still see the majority of them for such a large character Turning over to page 22, panel 5, this is where Raiding Mule kicks the living heck out of Cerberus. And the, special, the sound effect there is clong, which I really like. This is just a great dynamic panel, because you can, you can kind of picture this, even though uh, you know, we kind of think of the Shogun sometimes as being stiff. Here we really see some uh, fluid movement as... Uh, Raiding has his left leg planted and is diving down and he's got both hands and he's caught the uh, beach house in uh, in his hands and uh, then kicking back with his left leg straight back with, uh, like I said, the, the clong sound effect. And we see the impact it has on Cerberus where not only is it striking him back, but it's knocking his head configuration apart as well. Very, very cool panel. Uh, page 23, panel 3, as Radine unleashes everything uh, he has on Cerberus. Unfortunately, this panel really doesn't work, because we see him firing a rocket arrow, throwing his uh, wrist gauntlet, and firing a screamer hawk, and it just looks really kind of stiff and awkward, and I'm, yeah, it, it doesn't work. This, this panel just, it should be epic, but it ends up being kind of laughable to look at, unfortunately. I like where the the narrative part of it, but as far from a storytelling standpoint, from a just a simple art standpoint, this panel really doesn't work, which is kind of a letdown considering that it's kind of the you know the big uh, climax of the fight here, and rating just unloads on him, and it looks kind of weak. Now the next panel looks better, where we see um, in the foreground we just see Raiding's hands, and we see all the impacts that these weapons are having on Cerberus. It says "ba ba boom." And yeah, you look at that and you say, he is toast. You know, no question about that. Turn over to uh, page 26, panels 2 through 4, as Cerberus makes his escape. Uh, Radine gives chase by transforming to Firehawk, a nice little three-panel sequence here of him transforming. And uh, just well done, because the, the three panels are, uh, well, it's a triangle, and then all two almost triangles. They're, they're squared off, so they're not quite exactly, but they form a larger rectangle, and we see the transformation. Very nice little sequence here. Um, turning over now to page 30, panel 5. As Elongo and Judith dive down and take a look at the thing that landed from from the sky, for all intents and purposes, it looks like the monster Bolton from Ultraman. And, and for those who may not know, Bolton was he looked like basically a living meteor that kind of rolled around, and he had different uh, little uh, you know looks like ports or nipples almost sticking out of him on different sides, and he could make weird things happen. That's what it looks like. Now we don't see it for that long. It's only really these two panels before it splits apart. And that brings us to page 35. Now, the thing from the grotto is this insane Lovecraftian monster, but it's almost mixed with like an old Atlas comic-style monster. I love this design. We see it has at least four tentacles in front. It's bright orange. Its face is a mouth with, with like cobra fangs on the top and then a blue face inside the mouth with a red eye peering out. Uh, there's two purple tongues coming out of the side, almost like a Fu Manchu mustache. In between them, it looks like green, like fiber or cilia almost, and they're dripping green slime. All down its back are uh, uh, 
they look like undulating like small tentacles like a centipede's legs that are filled with uh, little hairs and fibers there's little lines of hair all over this thing it's got green wavy tentacles in the back this thing is bananas looking it looks awesome i cannot wait to see the next issue to see this thing in action because my god this looks crazy i said if if you know if marvel was doing an adaptations of you know, like Cthulhu stories back during the 1950s. This is what it would have looked like. I may scan this. This is fabulous. I absolutely love this. Really nice. Uh, just, you can't, you know, that's just a way to end it. I mean, that's a, a hell of a cliffhanger right there. Not the, as far as the, the rest of the material in the book, ads was really disappointing. There's not much in the way of ads that's interesting at all. Not, we don't get a, uh, hostess ad we don't get anything really particularly funny or, or interesting on the bullpen bulletins we do get a little house ad for the warriors of the shadow realm uh which is uh, pretty neat i've never read that but uh, it's you know i it's this era is when they you know marvel was really experimenting with some of those uh, other genres uh, in the wake you know of conan the barbarian being such a hit for him i do want to talk briefly about the letter column which is called warrior dispatch now the interesting thing about the letter column is they print uh, four letters here and the majority of them are positive but they do have a, a negative one from a, a bill seligman from brooklyn new york who goes on to basically to say that it's uh you know, it's it's very simplistic, and uh, you know that you know, he says I feel most Marvelites will expect more than a wham zap and a few mechanized shape changers and power rays, and he makes a you know kind of a point about how he liked Star Wars and Micronauts, but he thought that this series was too uh, childish almost. But then we come back with some other guys who are very happy about it, including uh, Robin Gandy, who makes a, uh, a point about the outline glossary, the series Bible that was published in the letter column back, I think, in issue three, that he actually, he liked that Marvel put it with an ad on the back. He actually cut it out and pinned it to his wall, so he had a reference for the Shogun Warriors. <laughs> I really like that. Um, you know, I mean, I can, it's mixed. And uh, it's interesting to see it. Uh, I always like reading the, or at least glancing over the letter columns in old issues like this just to see what people were saying. I mean, obviously, majority of them are usually positive, because why else would you write in? But it's always interesting to see the negative criticisms as well. Overall, this was really an action-packed issue. Gave the giant robot fans out there a lot to get excited over about the extended battle between Raiding and Cerberus and then the tease of what's coming next issue. Character wasn't totally ignored either, which I thought was really good. We got little bits of uh, character development, both Elongo and Genji, even though Genji's literally only in the book for one page. But, you know, at least it's moving her story along. And we got some, uh, you know, good development with uh, Elongo, which I didn't get into as much here, where he tells Judith that he picked her because she was the best person for the job and that he then fell in love with her. He didn't pick her because for his research team because he was in love with her, which I thought was nice. Cliffhanger, as I said, was absolutely fantastic. Trimpy really outdid himself with the design of the thing from the grotto. Just really crazy monster look. And I and you know once one once again highlighting the strength of the comic book form. Your monsters don't aren't limited by what you can make out of foam and latex and have somebody move around in. So they really look uh, you know crazy and outlandish. Uh, definitely not a deep comic by any measure, but a heck of a lot of fun. I can I can see why the book got the mixed response that it was getting uh, on the letter column. You know, given a lot of the other Marvel stuff from the era was moving in a more somewhat serious, somewhat more mature 
you know, relatively speaking manner uh, in, in the late 70s, early 80s like this. But for what this book is aiming to be, I think it absolutely hits the bullseye. A lot of fun. Can't wait to talk about uh, issue nine next time out. All right, I'm going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back here on Earth Destruction Directive. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who. I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is. A crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series or issue or character or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Longbox. A podcast about comics, or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. All right, we're back on Earth Destruction Directive, and now to get into everybody's favorite segment of the show. Of course, I don't know if that's tr- correct or not, but hey, it sounded good. Your feedback from the show, and uh, if you're interested in sending feedback, you can always email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. You can also uh, pester me on Facebook. Uh, the uh, Just search for Earth Destruction Directive, and you'll find me. And... Uh, and I haven't mentioned this. I do want to mention briefly that I do have one iTunes review out there from Jack Dower. Thank you very much, uh, Jack. And I don't use iTunes, so I never think to mention it. But if you use iTunes and you're interested in leaving a iTunes review, please search out Earth Destruction Directive on iTunes and leave an honest review. Every review that you leave helps the show get uh, a little bit more notoriety and uh, would appreciate it. And always, of course, appreciate honest feedback. Now... Uh, here is our first email, which comes from Daniel Yarbrough, and is entitled, Enjoyed the Show, and Daniel writes, Hello, Luke. My name is Daniel Yarbrough. I'm never really one for emailing into podcasts, as I prefer to be a silent listener to shows most of the time. Well, Daniel, if you know me, you know I like to spout off an email all the time, so, uh, go ahead. So, feel free not to read what's on the, read this one on the air, anything like that, as I just wanted to contact you and say how much I enjoyed your show. Daniel, I, I love getting email. So I will always read email, and yours was was very well put together, as we'll see in a minute. So let's get back to it. See, I've been aware of your show, Earth Destruction Directive, for some time, having heard your promo and seen it show up on the Two True Freaks feed, but I had not taken 
I had never taken the time to listen to it before. This is nothing personal, of course, but while I love giant monsters as much as the next guy, I have only actually seen, like, two Godzilla movies, one of them being the Matthew Broderick movie that I seem to be the only one in the world that actually liked, and that is the most experience I have really had with the Daikaiju genre. So I didn't listen because I felt I would not really understand what you were talking about. Then you put up your recent holiday episode, covering an episode of one of my all-time favorite shows, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, and I thought, what the heck? I'll give it a listen. Now, let me just stop right there for a second, Daniel, and say I, I understand where you're coming from, saying that, you know, if you're not a big Daikaiju fan, it, you, you might feel a little hesitant. And I appreciate you giving the show a try, because I, what I try to do is make it more open. And that's why I do the summaries of the films and the comics and the shows that I talk about and don't just assume everybody is up to speed on it. Because I understand this is this is a very niche genre here in the in the States, and I want to try and, you know, make it more accessible to people. So I'm, I'm glad you gave it a try. Daniel continues, and let me just say I really enjoyed the show. You did a great job recapping what was a simple but rather goofy episode of the series. Your synopsis was well done, painting a clear picture of an episode I had not seen in many years. What I really appreciated was that you did not shy away from how silly and, well, ridiculous some of the show is, yet still, show, yet still showed what was fun and enjoyable about it. I was also very impressed by your knowledge of the series and the genre. I don't think I can even pronounce some of those Japanese names. That is the hardest thing in the world, trying to figure out how to pronounce certain Japanese names and terms and not sound like an idiot when you meet someone who's a native speaker. That, that's, that is tough. That is tough. Daniel continues, The only fact, as a longtime fan of the series, I noted was when you mentioned the continuity of Kim's mother being in Paris as a callback to the episode Return of an Old Friend. That episode is actually where it was just revealed that her parents were divorced. Her mom did not remarry until the episode of Brush with Destiny, and that is also where Kimberly moves in with Aisha's family, which is referenced in Dreaming of a White Ranger. Just wanted to share that info. Hope it didn't come off as me trying to be a know-it-all, as I know I'm far from, and I actually learned several bits of information from listening to your episode. Actually, Daniel, don't worry about that, being coming off as a know-it-all. First off, again, because I often sound like a know-it-all when I don't know nearly enough to really be a know-it-all but you're absolutely right i had forgotten about the uh, a brush with destiny and thinking back you're absolutely right in return of an old friend kim's parents are both there but they're separated it's only the two of them i, I got uh, confused a little bit so return of an old friend that storyline with the parents is really kind of the secondary aspect because that's obviously when tommy comes back and gets the green ranger powers back so that was more the focus especially me when i'm in the sixth grade and you know everybody's got oh my god tommy's the coolest guy ever oh my god 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 like Miley Cyrus in here. So I, I appreciate you pointing that out, and you're absolutely right. I mean, if I ever go through and do a full run of Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, first off, with my release schedule, oh my god, that would take me until I'm retired. But secondly, the little bits like that, the little bits of continuity, is what I thought helped the show out, because while it, it used continuity, it wasn't a slave to it. So things could happen, and they would make references to things, and if if you were a longtime fan, say, oh yeah, I remember that, but if you weren't, it didn't really matter. You just kind of took it as you went. Uh, Daniel continues, the reason I wanted to write most of all is just to let you know that your Christmas episode did bring in a new listener to, you sh to your show. It inspired me to watch an old episode of a show from my childhood over the holiday season, and I will now definitely make it a point to listen out more episodes of Earth Destruction Directive. By the way... Uh, by the way, you handled this subject. I feel like I can enjoy the shows where you cover giant monsters I know very little about, just as entertaining and informative. So keep up the great work, Luke, and keep stomping. Sincerely, Daniel Yarbrough. Daniel, thank you very much for writing in. Always love to hear from new listeners, and I'm glad that I was able to uh, to reach out to you through through Power Rangers. You know, it's, it's funny because even... 
folks who who you know like in your boat who never really watched much Godzilla or anything or maybe were you know didn't grow up in a market that like I did in New York where Godzilla movies were always on TV everybody I think has had some cross with Power Rangers or Tokusatsu at some point in their life and there's always that little connective tissue one of the reasons I don't cover a lot of Super Sentai on here is because you know it's kind of a Super Sentai has always existed in that weird middle ground where it's half henshin hero and half daikaiju but that little bit of daikaiju is more than enough as a foothold to understand the other concepts and uh you know parts of the genre of daikaiju so i'm really glad that you're you came on board and i really hope you're enjoying what you're hearing uh for the episodes we've done since the holiday special all right our next email is from mr tim elliott and is entitled episode 25 feedback and tim writes hello luke i just finished episode 25 godzilla versus mothra great episode and a long list of great episodes well thank you very much tim Tim continues, I listened to two other Daikaiju podcasts, I will refrain from naming names, and as I enjoy the other podcast, they never give a synopsis of the story, so unless you are familiar with the film, you're a little in the dark. And and again, get, this gets back to what Daniel was saying, not everybody has seen all this stuff, you know, and, and I don't I don't understand going on to, you know, to talk about something if you haven't, that, that your audience hasn't seen and may not be familiar with it, all you're doing is alienating people. It's, it's my feeling, you know. I didn't know about these movies until I saw them. I didn't magically just know about them. And if you haven't seen them, you'd have no way of knowing. There, I mean, there are Daikaiju films out there I've never seen. It wouldn't do me any good to listen to a podcast about a film I've never seen without some kind of context, at least, right? So, uh, Tim continues. I have a few questions. Have you ever considered picking a film and doing a commentary? Maybe team up with The Nerds on Film or Scott and Chris? Uh, I have considered that. The problem for me would be how to do one as a solo commentary and not just be me describing the action of the film. I, I, I want to give it a try. I'm not sure what film to do it with. I think I may try it out with one of the public domain Gamera films or maybe Monster from a Prehistoric Planet or Yungari or something like that because then I'm th- my thought is maybe if I record a commentary, I can sync it with the video and release that and then that might give folks a chance to you know, actually see what's going on with it, and I don't worry about any copyright issues because it'd be public domain. But I have considered it. As far as teaming up with the other guys, I don't know that there's any interest from from Scott and Chris about doing a commentary in a Daikaiju movie, but the nerds on film, maybe. So I'll, I'll have to look into that, and uh, we'll see what we can see for that. Maybe... Um, Maybe we can do the the Godzilla '98. You know, I know I know uh, Scott uh, Gardner likes that one, and with the new Godzilla coming out this year, maybe there's some an opportunity there. Uh, Tim continues. Do you know if there are any plans to release any of the Godzilla films as the release date for the new movie arrives? Well, if you listen to the beginning of this episode, you got some updates on that, and I'm sure there'll be a few more coming out. But hey, you know, four Godzilla movies and King Kong Escapes and Godzilla the series all coming out on DVD and Blu-ray. You know, that's that's just fabulous. You know, that's that's uh, gonna be a, uh, plan your purchases wisely and make sure you have enough to cover all that. Uh, Tim continues, I love the Heisei series of films, would like some Blu-rays or at least something similar to the Toho Master Collection. Keep them stomping, Tim Elliott, Texas. Unfortunately, Tim, I haven't seen anything about re-releasing the Heisei films. Uh, Certainly not on Blu-ray and not on any DVDs other than the original Sony ones or the double features that are out there. I, I don't know. I agree with you. I, I don't understand why we haven't seen more of those. I mean, a lot of folks who grew up with the Heisei films 
in even in Japan now are coming into their you know their 20s and 30s and have that disposable income you'd think they'd want to tap that market but everything we've been getting is is Showa so far and uh, and I don't know why that is uh, hopefully we'll see some some uh, movement on that I'd like to get you know versions of uh, the Heisei films actually when we got we got Godzilla as a biolanti but that's you know that's it I'd love to see you know King Ghidorah Mothra Mechagodzilla Space Godzilla and Destoroyah uh, released where we can get the not only the uh, the dubs but also the subtitled uh, Japanese subtitle would be nice as well. Thank you very much for writing in, Tim. Like I said, hope you're glad you're enjoying the show. Hope you like uh, where we're going. Our next email is from Mr. Ben Avery, and Ben writes, "Luke, I've been digging through your archives and really digging your show. Just wanted to drop you a line." Letting you know, I've been watching through various Godzilla movies, and as I've been about to get through your back episodes, I've started trying to watch the movie you're talking about before I listen. Unless it's Ultraman or Power Rangers. What's wrong with Ultraman and Power Rangers, man? Give it a shot! Especially Ultraman. I mean, it's it's free on Hulu. You can't... There's no reason not to watch Ultraman. I can understand not wanting to watch Power Rangers. There's a bit of a stigma there. But Ultraman's old school, man. It's classic. Uh, ben continues, this means for me, I'm not all, I'm all cut up except for your most recent episode. The coolest thing about that is that I have been very interested in watching through those 80s, 90s series as a series. And guess what movie's next in that group? Godzilla vs. Mothra. This particular set of movies is interesting to me because they form a sustained narrative. The earlier movies were connected but did not conform to continuity. The later movies reset continuity with almost every outing. But this set of movies, with the recurring character of the psychic, intrigues me. Uh, yeah, and that's a, and that's a real good point, Ben. The the Heisei films are unique in that they do have the the narrative over the entire span of the films. Events that happen in the in each film uh, affect what happens down the line. You know, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's a little more pronounced, uh, but it it does build up. And that was part of the issue why they had to end the Heisei series the way they did. You know, as Godzilla kept absorbing more and more radiation through these films, he kept getting bigger and bigger. So they had to keep building sets at different scales. That was one of the motivations for having him actually, you know, melt down in uh, Godzilla versus Destoroyah. So it, it is interesting to watch as a series. And what's funny is that Mickey Segusa actually generally looks more consistent from film to film than Godzilla does. So she's more the connective tissue even than Godzilla is in some cases. Ben continues, that's actually one thing that appeals to the geek in me, all the timelines of continuity, from weird one-offs that aren't connected to anything, Godzilla's Revenge, to the weird trilogy implied by the dialogue in Godzilla, Mothra, and King Ghidorah, Giant Monsters, All-Out Attack, which seems to be Godzilla 54, Godzilla 98, and Giant Monsters, All-Out Attack. What? There's so many different timelines. I know as a comic book guy, I shouldn't say this, but I like all these timelines. Got a story that doesn't fit? Just go ahead and tell it. Want to do a sustained continuity like the Heisei series? Go for it. Want to reboot completely and wipe out all the other stuff so a new movie can be told? Do it. Like some of the things from the last movie? Use them in the next movie. So you get something like Godzilla against Mechagodzilla, which was a reboot, and then a direct sequel with Tokyo SOS, and then another reboot with Final Wars, although it's been so long since I've seen Final Wars, I may be remembering that it was a reboot wrong. Uh, no, you're correct. Final Wars is not tied to anything. What's interesting about uh, Godzilla against Mechagodzilla, it'd always be GXMG for me, again, because I was on, you know, that was what you called it back then, you know. But anyway, uh, and, and Tokyo SOS is that the other films that they include. War of the Gargantuas is specifically included in the continuity of those films because the Prime Minister talks about using the uh, the Mazer Cannon against Gyra 
in War of the Gargantuas. And the original Mothra is also part of those, but not Mothra vs. Godzilla from 1964. So it's interesting how they really picked and chose different pieces to build that, that little continuity that exists between those two films. And I like both of those. I think they're, they're good movies. Uh, I think the first one gets overlooked a bit. I'm not sure why. Probably because it wasn't as popular with uh, fans, especially in this country, as as Giant Monsters All Out Attack. You know, GMK, the the idea of the, the truly evil Godzilla again just really took people by storm in this country. So, But I like I like that film, and I agree. One of the strengths is it doesn't matter what the, the story is. If you want to have it tied, you can. If you want to just do a one-off, there's no problem with that, which is one reason I think that Godzilla works so well in comics. You know, there, there's, you know Godzilla's an iconic character to me. He's like Dracula or Tarzan or the Frankenstein monster. If you want to tell a story with him, you know, you're perfectly free to do that because you're not going to impact anything else. He's, he's such a, you know, a large character, and I don't mean that in a physical sense, but the shadow that he casts is so large that he can cover many different types of stories, and they don't all have to tie together. Much like, you know, you can watch a Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan or the Disney Tarzan or read Edgar Rice Burroughs, and they're all legitimate forms of Tarzan, and, and one doesn't detract from the other. You know, but they can also be additive. You can borrow elements freely if you want to do that. Um, let's see. Ben continues. The f- the franchise is strong enough to take it. I almost wish comic books were more like this. And I don't mean rebooting after things get broken or fixing a marriage with a deal with the devil. Uh-huh. I mean just telling interesting stories with the characters and not worrying so much about continuity. Amen, Mr. Avery. Amen to that. Anyway... Ben continues, those are just my thoughts about what what has been... Anyway, let's try this again. Anyway, those are just my thoughts about that as I've been wa- watching through. Be talking with you soon about Godzilla vs. Mothra. Well, by talking with you, I mean talking back at the voice in my head coming through the earbuds. Love the podcast. Keep it up. Ben Avery. Ben, first let me say, remember... Listen to the voice in your heart, not the voices in your head. That's what I. That's something that was told to me many years ago. Uh, and again, thank you very much for the email, Ben. Uh, you can find Ben stuff at welcometolevel7.com, which is uh, Welcome to Level Seven is the uh, Agents of Shield Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. They also do a blog there. They uh, t- taking a look at Marvel comics and other Marvel stuff. Really neat stuff. I like Agents of Shield quite a bit. For a while, it seemed like I was the only person who did. So it was good to see uh, some people giving the show some attention. Ben, thank you so much for writing in. I really I appreciate uh, the thought that you were giving to the different types of timelines and stuff. And that's one reason why a series, I think, like Half Century War. You know, Half Century War clearly is its own timeline, but perfectly works. And the stuff that it borrows and, and puts in different ways, we're willing to accept it because these characters are their own little pantheon. You know, and just, just tell good stories. At the end of the day, that's what it's all about, isn't it? Just tell good stories, right? All right, our next email is from a man who some say still holds a grudge against Christopher Walken to this day. And the man who some say has bought every single one of Paul Williams' albums, despite not knowing anything about his music. All we know is that his name is Jack Dower. And Jack writes in with the subject, Light blue goes with everything, my friend. And Jack writes, hey there, detective. First, I want to say... I like all the Godzilla films. Now that Zilla is an official Toho character, and the American film is no longer a Godzilla movie. Well, that's an interesting bit of, uh, of retcon, isn't it there, Jack? It works out. I never had a problem with Zilla as a monster. You know, I mean, uh, that was not the issue with Godzilla 98. Zilla was not the problem, but we'll get into that another time. Uh, 
Jack continues, the Heisai Godzilla vs. Mothra is my least favorite of the Heisai era. It has enough bright spots in Batra, the soundtrack, an enjoyable series of battles for me to watch and rewatch the film. It's just that I rewatch it less than the others, and, and I have to agree with Jack on this point. I'm, I'm similarly fairly lukewarm on the next one, Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla from 1993. And they're good films, but I never really reach for them to put them in. You know, I, part of Godzilla vs. Mothra may be that I was never a huge Mothra fan. I like Mothra okay, but the Mothra I know was more the larva from uh, uh, Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster. That was the Mothra I grew up with. I, it wasn't until I was a little older that I got, you know, Godzilla vs. The Thing. But I always like the mo- the larva Mothra better than the uh, the grown Mothra, so that may be why uh, I'm a, le- a little less interested in that one. But and it, they're, they're good, but they're not as good, you know what I'm saying? Especially after, I think, three really strong films with uh, Return of Godzilla, uh, Biolanti, and King Ghidorah. But. All right, Jack continues. Second, on the Shogun Warriors comic, uh, please don't sing again. Well, sorry, I had to break it out one more time. Uh, your Charles Nelson Rowley impression was great, though. If he had his own Shogun Warrior, would it have appeared on a cheesy 70s and 80s game shows with him? Of course. I think that kind of goes without question, doesn't it? You know, good old Charles Nelson Rowley. Weird Al did a great song about Charles Nelson Rowley. Uh, you can probably find that one online. At, at some point, we need to, you know, we need to do like a match game podcast. I know Scott Gardner always brings up match game, or not always, I shouldn't say, but brings up match game sometimes. And I remember watching match game on... I don't know if it was it was on it used to be on USA or before Game Show Network I guess but I don't know but man those were those were classic. Getting back to Jack's email third I was given for Christmas a still in the box Corgi Penguin Mobile awesome. Now all I am missing is the Penguin Cycle who says the Birdman of Banditry only uses umbrellas and yellow ducks to travel in that is sweet. Now those cor- Jack write in and let me know the corgis are they one sixty fourth or are they bigger. I never had really any corgis, and I know that they made some 164 scale stuff, but I don't know if these are, are that size or if they're bigger scale. Please let me know. Uh, finally, I am so excited for the DC Godzilla hardcover. It would be awesome for DC to get the Godzilla license. Then we could finally get that Slipknot on Monster Island miniseries everyone's clamoring for from your ears to Dan, from your mouth to Dan DiDio's ears, Jack. That's all i got to say about that. It's interesting because IDW's license is ending at the end of... Uh, right now it appears that they're ending because all indications show that Godzilla Rulers of Earth number 12 will be the last issue IDW publishes. And then, you know, Legendary, because they're tied with Warner Brothers, is releasing the Godzilla prequel hardcover through DC, much like they did with Pacific Rim. So I'm not sure, not sure what all is going to happen with that. Would be interesting to see uh, Godzilla end up at DC. Uh, I haven't heard any indications about where you know, they would end up, if anywhere. So I guess we'll, we'll find out together. Uh, Jack continues, here are my questions. One, Skipper Shag on the Fire and Water podcast mentioned that he thought you would love the beginning of Aquaman 27 because it had a giant monster attacking a foreign land. I thought it was a fantastic fight myself. Did you see it? If so, how did you feel about it? Unfortunately, I had to drop Aquaman from my monthly roles. It's a good book. I really liked it. And it wasn't because of the creative team change. It was just budgetary. I ended up dropping it even before Jeff Johns left. It just couldn't afford my monthly comic bills anymore. And I had to seriously slash back on it. But I will seek out, maybe I'll pick that issue up on Comixology and take a look at that sequence uh, to take a look at it. 
Uh, Jack continues, finally, my favorite Godzilla film is King Kong vs. Godzilla. I still see that fight used in marketing. It is clearly one of the most famous battles ever. They are finally going to release to Blu-ray, which got me thinking. They kind of remade Godzilla vs. Mothra in the Heisei film. Why not remake one of the biggest Godzilla films of all time? I read on Wikipedia that they tried. Is it true? What do you think of the film, and how would you feel about a remake done by Peter Jackson or Guillermo del Toro? Um... That, uh, okay, I'll, I'll, let me answer that question, and then I'll get back to the email. <clears throat> First off, yes, I would. I, you were abs- Yes, there was an attempt to remake King Kong vs. Godzilla under the title, wait for it, Godzilla vs. King Kong, uh, in the early '90s. And the reason for this was that King Kong vs. Godzilla remains the most successful and, in many ways, most popular Godzilla film ever in Japan. Uh, the the problem was, uh, as is detailed on the Wikipedia page, when Toho inquired about doing this, even though they had you know previously made two films with King Kong, the license that it was going to cost from the people at Turner, who had the controlling stake in Kong at that time, was basically going to be more than their entire budget for the film. So they, they got rid of that idea and decided instead, okay, we own Mechanicong. Why don't we make Mechanicong as a stand-in for King Kong? And what happened with that was, apparently, from a legal standpoint, even using King Kong's likeness, insofar as a robot double of him, would require them to purchase the license to use it from Turner. So that was why Mechanicong got dropped entirely, and they decided instead to bring back King Ghidorah. Now, one interesting thing I've read, and I I don't know if this is true or not, but supposedly the script uh, treatment that was developed for the Godzilla vs. Mechanicong film would have featured Mechanicong injecting Godzilla with a small ship that the pilots of which would have attempted to fight Godzilla from the inside, perhaps using uh, bacteria or something like that, like the film Fantastic Voyage. It's like, man, that would have been pretty neat. Also kind of an oblique callback to Gamera versus Jiger, where they do something very similar. They pilot a little mini-sub inside Gamera. Um, so, yes, uh, could the unfortunately, remake for King Kong versus Godzilla most likely never going to happen in Japan. Now... That having been said, every time there's a list of, oh, what films need to be remade, to me, King Kong vs. Godzilla is always the top of the list. A, a Guillermo del Toro or Peter Jackson or that type of, you know, technically superb style a remake of King Kong vs. Godzilla would be mind-blowing. I mean, can you imagine, you know, uh, the, the Heisai-style Godzilla tangling with the Kong that we saw in the Jackson uh, uh, King Kong? Man, that'd be just crazy, and you could do so much with that. You know, one of the the asp- I love King Kong versus Godzilla. I've I've always liked that one, and it's weird because you know my dad is such a huge original King Kong fan that you know there was always kind of the stigma around the Toho Kongs. But as I've grown up, I've I've gotten to the point where it's like, look, they were doing it to honor Kong. They weren't making fun of him. You know, they loved King Kong in Japan, and this was their way of doing you know their take on it. It wasn't meant to. It was meant to be in in. Uh, how do I want to say this, meant to be uh, respectful of the original Kong and just doing their take. So, yeah, I love King Kong vs. Godzilla. I'm totally tempted to get the Blu-ray, to be completely frank. I would love to see a remake of that, just to see the, the modern technology handle those two behemoths battling each other. And the scene of them fighting over the palace, that's just absolutely iconic. I mean, that's such a classic shot. And it tells us the power of the film to this day, the rumored, uh, the, the urban legend about the two endings still persists, which is, com- of course, completely false, but still hang- they still hangs tough in there, you know. In fact, what's funny, King Kong vs. Godzilla was recently on the Sven Gulli show, 
out of Chicago. Now, for some reason, I get this on my local Me TV affiliate every Saturday night. And they showed King Kong vs. Godzilla, and during the end credits, Sven Gulli actually addressed this. He said that the long-standing urban legend of there being two endings is false. I thought that was a, that was a nice touch. Uh, Jack finishes up. Thanks for a great show. Keep them stomping and stay safe out there, Jack Dower. P.S. On Netflix, I'm currently watching the 40 episodes of Zilla's cartoon series. Got misnamed Godzilla the series. Have you seen this? It's great. Why couldn't the movie have been this good? Sorry I went so long. I'll try to keep it under control in the future. Uh, Jack, first off, don't worry about the length of your emails. If you hear some of the emails I write, you're, you got, you, you're a long way from being long-winded compared to me, so you're cool on that front. Godzilla the series, I, I did watch this when I was in college. The problem was that a lot of times it got preempted or moved around because this was during the time when Kids WB had Pokemon and Fox Kids had Digimon, and that was like battleground state, man, Pokemon versus Digimon. So Godzilla the series, unfortunately, a lot of times got shuffled around or just didn't get aired so they could accommodate long marathons or back-to-back episodes of Digimon on Fox. So good. it is a good show, though. It's very much... Uh, an improvement over the movie and you can see that they were really kind of thinking more along the lines of classic Showa Godzilla with that series of him fighting a series of monsters all around the world um, I, I, it is on Netflix but I'm still going to be buying that DVD you know things disappear from Netflix you know do I for, and for 10 bucks I'm not going to not going to question it but yes that, that if you want if you have Netflix and you want to watch some Godzilla the series definitely check it out it's, it's a lot of fun even if you didn't like Godzilla 98 I think you'll like Godzilla the series uh, Jack, again, thank you very much for writing in, and uh, I want to thank everybody for writing in. Really appreciate the feedback. As I've said many times, the absolute lifeblood through the heart of any podcaster is feedback, good or bad, so that we know at least people are out there listening and that our, our efforts are not just to speak into this mic in front of a in front of a computer and nobody cares you know whether you like the show hate the show at least you're caring enough to to send some feedback and you're caring enough to download the show and i appreciate every last one of you guys and gals out there that listens to the show and i want you all to to know that and i mean that seriously i really do uh okay so this comes a time in the show when we have to say what we're going to do next time and next time we're going back to the small screen in the realm of ultraman we're taking a look at the next two episodes of the original 1966 ultraman episodes five and six these features the debut of the monster green mons and then the monster gesera one of my personal favorites we also will of course be looking at shogun warriors number nine and if we have any new news breaking about the uh, new godzilla film any new films being released on Blu-ray or DVD. Anything of that nature will, of course, get you that news as uh, best we can here, plus your feedback and emails, as always. And if anything else interesting comes up, we'll have to throw it in there as well. So I want to thank everyone for listening. I hope you all enjoyed the show. And until next time, keep them stomping. Directive, a Daikaiju podcast, produced and created by me, Luke Giaconetti, as part of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. This is a fan work celebrating the history and culture of Japanese giant monsters. All movies, TV shows, comic books, characters, and other intellectual property 
are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended or implied. If you'd like to send an email to the show, you can email me at earthdestructiondirective at yahoo.com. I respond to all emails, and if you send in some comments, we will read them on the show. If you'd like to visit our forum, you can head over to www.forumforgeeks.com and come on down to the Two True Freaks section. All episodes of Earth Destruction Directive can be found at twotruefreaks.com. And if you want to buy something discussed on the show, head over to twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon.com link on the front page. Anything you buy during your next Amazon session after clicking that link will help keep the lights on here at Two True Freaks. You can also find me on Twitter with the handle LJacone. That's L-J-A-C-O-N-E. Thanks for listening, and be sure to come back next time for more city-stomping fun on Earth Destruction Directive. Well, it's big and terrible. More frightening than I ever thought possible.